coming up on the Inside Indiana Business Television podcast. Indiana's RV industry sees record sales. We talk to Butler's new basketball coach. Robots are helping farmers in the field. An artist is preserving Hoosier agriculture on canvas. A Purdue grad is behind historic breast milk storage innovation. We spotlight students teaching finance. And we talk about the state's biggest business news with our partners at the IBJ and our panel of insiders. Welcome to the Inside Indiana Business Television podcast. I'm Andy Ober. Indiana's RV industry is cashing in big time on vacationers hitting the road. We head to the RV capital of the world in northern Indiana to see what's driving record sales. Economic Development Corporation of Elkhart County CEO Chris Stager talked about it with Inside Indiana business host Gary Dick. Okay, I mentioned those numbers, you know, kind of surprising, you would think, with all of the challenges in the economy. Double-digit growth, that's, that's been a positive story, I assume, for northern Indiana. Yeah, it's, it's been wonderful uh, over the last uh, three years. Uh, you know, we've set uh, uh, manufacturing records and, and consumer uh, purchase records. So we're pleased to see uh, that level of growth. And uh, we're excited to see uh, how some of the... Uh, I guess federal policy impacts the industry going forward. Yeah, and that a uh, lot of eyes on that federal policy. What's going to happen out of D.C. and uh, elsewhere? I know you were at a, a, an RV power breakfast uh, here uh, th- this week, and everybody's looking at fuel prices. They're very high. Obviously, that has a direct impact on the RV sector. And it's it's your what you heard at that breakfast is if these average prices stay around four four and a half, sh- the impact should be muted in the RV industry. But if it yeah, I, I think it'd be. Uh, I, uh, I'm sorry. No, uh, yeah, I think it'll be minimized. But you know, if, if it hits a five dollar threshold, I think that uh, then uh, you know it's going to start to. Uh, uh, definitely impair the ability to sell these units out, out to the public. So uh, for a number of reasons, obviously discretionary money for every family now is uh, a challenge and, uh, you know, discretionary purchase naturally when uh, you have to get to work and you have to pay high fuel costs, I'll, I'll play into that. So, yeah. Yeah. Uh, Chris, talk about the importance of the RV industry in Northern Indiana uh, RV capital uh, of the world. I know there have been attempts and there have been uh, successes in diversifying, but still RV is so important for folks who don't know how important that industry is and the, the thousands of people it employs. Yeah, in, in our county, uh, we have uh, uh, about 35,000 workers uh, daily that uh, come into the county in addition to uh, the workforce that's here to, to support the industry. So it's critically important. And we have a very deep supply chain that sells into the automotive space as well as the RV space, uh, and, and all of those things uh, play together. Uh, so we love uh, we love the industry. Uh, it's what uh, sort of, I guess, to coin an expression, brought us to the party. And we love uh, the ability to uh, uh, watch that industry mature and, and, and grow to the next level. Yeah, workforce, a key issue everywhere. In Elkhart County, very interesting. We were talking before we started taping here. Uh, Unemployment has doubled in Elkhart County, but now it's just up to 1.8%. So the unemployment rate is, uh, is has really become a challenge, right? Finding finding the people to work uh, to fill the jobs that are out there. Yeah, we're not uh, unique in that. Uh, you know, it's a national phenomena, but more pronounced in manufacturing economies that require a certain set of skills. And, uh, you know, and naturally, uh, even at the production level, uh, when we get down to those levels of unemployment, uh, it's challenging for uh, our industries to uh, produce the products they need. Uh, 
because we're uh, technically uh, fully employed. Yeah, yeah. Hey, uh, one more question for you, Chris. Uh, everybody's looking for signs of, you know, where the economy not only is, but where it's headed. A lot of concerns about recession and things like that. You're talking about a pipeline uh, of construction, some speculative space up there, industrial. Uh, that's pretty robust uh, uh, sitting up there in, uh, in Elkhart County in northern Indiana. Yeah, we, we have uh, currently about a million uh, square feet of speculative building uh, in planning. Uh, and, and some of that is uh, um, uh, larger, what I call larger format. Uh, some of it's uh, three, 300,000 square feet and up, and, and some of it's smaller. And some of it is, is to replace older inventory that we've had that uh, has become impractical because of ceiling heights and things like that. You know, generally speaking, uh, all of our plants uh, now require more power, more infrastructure because of the automation. And we have to have the ability to store more goods as the volume of the industry increases. So a lot of that's just trying to build into the volume that yeah. uh, the industry has been generated. All right. Uh, a lot of eyes on Elkhart County and the RV sector to see where the economy may be headed. Chris Steger, the president and CEO of the Economic Development Corporation of Elkhart County. Chris, as always, thanks for joining us. Thank you for having me again. A high schooler who lit up Illinois basketball courts is returning to coaching to take the helm of the Butler Bulldogs. Thad Mata spoke with Bill Benner on Inside Indiana Sports about what brought him back to the bench. I know uh, when you took the job, you, you've, had, you've been out of coaching five years. You've kind of regained your health through your, your back issues. You've had some other offers, but this came along and it seems like such a perfect fit player, coach at Butler, your wife, your daughter's Butler, uh, and you're back in the Hinkle Field House. How's it feel? Well, you know, it's, it's funny. It feels great to be back here. And, and, you know, the one month I've been on a job, things have gone so fast. I was telling somebody the other day, I, I really haven't had that euphoric moment of, of the realization that I'm the head coach at Butler University. I'm back here because everything, you know, from recruiting, putting the staff together, uh, dealing with our own players, Everything's been going so fast, but uh, you know it does. It does feel like home, and and just the fact that you know I've been living in Indianapolis, and and uh, don't have to move that sort of thing. It's it's uh, it's a special time for the Mata family. Well, and living in Indianapolis and not living just anywhere, you're <laughs> neighbors with athletic director Barry Collier. You're your former coach. You're an assistant under Barry. Right. Uh, and again, I, I get the feeling uh, you had some other offers, but uh, Butler was again the perfect fit and maybe the only fit for, to get you back on, on the sidelines? Yeah, you know, it's funny, Bill. There's something about this place, I, and I, I don't know what it is. I, I, I can't put it in words, but, um, yeah, I, I just – I love what Butler University stands for. I, I know uh, without me having Butler in my life, I wouldn't be where I am today. Um, I, I like the fact of, of what it does for our student-athletes, and, and when they leave here – you know, they're, they're, they're good young men. They're ready to go into the world. And, you know, this place is not a factory where, you know, we just run guys through here and, and try to win as many games as we can. Obviously, we're trying to win, win as many games as we can. But by the same token, we're trying to develop young men. I, I love that about Butler. Thad, obviously, Butler, a much different basketball place than when you were a student and, and coaching there, having moved on up to the, to, through the Atlantic Horizon League, Atlantic 10. And now the Big East, competitive challenges certainly in the Big East, a great basketball league, resource challenges in the Big East. Uh, but I'm certain that you feel confident that you can answer those challenges. Yeah, I mean, it, it's, 
as you remember back in the day when I was playing here and, and even coaching here, it's a, it is a completely different situation this time around. And, and um, you know, it, it's funny because when, when I moved back here, I, I'd come to Butler games and, and, you know, I, I knew the Big East was a good conference. I had no idea how good it, it actually is. Um, I think just from the standpoint of, of competitiveness, every single night you're on the court, you, you've got to play your best basketball and you've got to have great talent to do so. And, um, you know, I think in terms of resources, you know, there's, there's, there's a lot of ways you can look at resources. And, and I think we have what we need to be successful here. Um, you know, Hinkle Fieldhouse is Hinkle Fieldhouse. And, uh, you know, you're not going to come here and have luxury boxes and, and, you know, all those sorts of things. But there's an authenticity to this place that is, is special. And, and uh, you know, we want guys that, that want to take the hard road. And, and uh, you know, that's, that's how Butler's been successful in the past. Thad, we got about a minute left. Uh, talk about you had, again, walking into the situation, you had to first recruit your own team, the returnees, and I think you have eight of nine coming back. Uh, but then you also had to hit the, the transfer portal, and you've had a couple of significant impacts. Eric Hunter Jr. from Purdue, uh, Manny Bates from North Carolina State. So you have to feel good about your roster, although we're still in May. Right. Well, we haven't lost a game yet, so I feel great. But, no, I, I like I like Bill, who we've we've added. You know, it, it's in in recruiting, you, you're trying to put a jigsaw puzzle together, and you know, not knowing a ton about what we were returning, um, we knew there were some some holes or some pieces that we had to fill. And and I think the, the staff has done a tremendous job of going out and 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 finding those pieces and and finding uh, the the right type of kid to help us. Well, Thad, we certainly appreciate you coming on the show. We wish you the best uh, as the summer unfolds, and we look forward to the fall and the, uh, the start of hoops for the guy from Hoopston. You're back in the doghouse. Thad, best of wishes, best of luck. I appreciate it. Thank you very much, Bill. You got it. Robots are rolling through Hoosier farm fields to help farmers reap what they sow. West Lafayette-based Solinftech Chief Operating Officer Daniel Pedrao joined us to talk about the company's new high-tech ag tool. Before we get into this technology, because it is fascinating, uh, this robot technology, autonomous robot technology, talk a little bit about Solimftech, uh, a company that was headquartered in, in uh, Brazil, South America, uh, moved your operation, headquarters operation here to West Lafayette, precision, uh, precision ag company. Yeah, so company was founded uh, 17 years ago, and uh, we were really focused on solving uh, problems like the the since the beginning, we, we've been focused on how to solve one problem that it is. We've been uh, spending a lot of time in ag and how to, uh, like developing prescriptions, the, the product itself, and then mechanization, like large equipment and the running that. How, and sometimes one goes against the other. How can we marry those things and make you know, a real prescription happen, like to help farmers to take the most of the inputs they are using? And that's what we've been doing, started in Brazil. We have a pretty, probably, we are the largest ag tech company in Brazil. And then we de when we decided to come to US, was yeah. uh, working here and developing the and, company here. And a big project uh, since your move here is continuing that uh, research and development on this autonomous robot. Talk about the robot and what it actually does, how it enhances uh, the data experience, if you will, for farmers. Yeah. So. We like to say that we spend a lot of time with farmers and, uh, and with customers. So 
spending time with farmers, what we learn and asking them what they need, they tell us, look, if I could, I would love to spend my, my, more time inside of my, my fields. And the good farmers, we know that they do that. So we thought, so a lot of people think about like how to improve it, uh, providing more technology outside of the field, say, look, let's do whatever, exactly what they want. And we build this robot that it's an autonomous robot that runs in the field uh, 24 hours per day, seven days per week, gathering information, providing more information to the farmer to make decisions and helping them to make decisions in time. What, you, you, you mentioned 24 hours a day. I think it's solar powered, right? It's solar powered. Um, for those who aren't in the farming business, what kind of information uh, is, this, is this gathering? It depends on the season. It starts with uh, uh, emergent, then it goes to stent count, uh, weed pressure, uh, diseases, bugs, and it tracks the whole thing. It helps you to understand, like to make decisions in real time, and but even understand what happened in the past and yeah. like create models for to, that will help you in the future. Yeah. So you you have a lot of uh, expectations for this. How big could this product be? I know you're getting it out into some field testing and hope to release it for commercial use perhaps next year. What kind of how big could this product be for you? So that's it's hard to say as a as a new product. I'll say that we are very very excited about because when we launched that here in the US was a commodity classic. The, like talking with farmers, the interest is so big that actually at this point it's hard to predict. Yeah. But we think that from what we saw in the data and from what we heard from farmers, uh, something that can change the way we produce food. We have no doubt that will change yeah. a lot the way we produce food. Yeah, and that could uh, have an impact on the operations here. How many employees do you have in West Lafayette? 42. About 42, 800 or so down in Brazil. So a yes. big company growing here in Indiana. Daniel Padrone, thanks very much from Solymphtech. We'll be following the story. Thank you very much. All right. A young artist is embracing his agricultural roots and Indiana farming heritage. Reporter Mary Rachel Redmond has more on how Roy Boswell is preserving Hoosier agriculture on canvas. Well, his name is Roy Boswell, and with each stroke of a paintbrush, he's showing the world how Indiana agriculture is moving in a way we Hoosiers often take for granted. Of course, there's Monet. And from Degas, the ballet the beauty of Renoir, all three considered to be the founding fathers of Impressionist painting. Fast forward over a century, and one Hoosier has taken this late 19th century movement to the Midwest, more specifically to Indiana farms. When I first started painting, I started painting farm equipment, and the, the combines were typically my brother, because he runs those, and the grain carts are my dad because he's kind of slowed down a little bit, and that's kind of his job. Roy Boswell grew up on a family farm in southern Indiana. He started out as a landscape architecture major at Purdue, but quickly decided it was painting, not plotting soil, that captured his passion. I had a real interest in art, and that didn't seem like something that I would actually be able to do. I tried watercolor for a while, didn't particularly work out too well. But he met an artist in Brown County that introduced him to pastels, oils, and acrylics. And ever so slowly, his dream began to take shape. I started drawing the tractors, and as time went by, they kind of became stand-ins for my dad and brother because uh, I didn't know how to draw people at the time. 
I've learned since. And teachers and mentors alike told Roy painting farm equipment probably wasn't a good idea, given who typically purchases the art hung in most households. Most things, women move the market. And, uh, you know, I'm one of the few artists, I think, that uh, paint something that is pretty masculine and driven in that direction. Most of my clients are men. Women will buy it, and it's typically because their dad or their grandfather or somebody they, they love is a farmer or had farmed or grew up on a farm. So they kind of want to memorialize that. And perhaps the tagline on his Instagram profile is the best way to describe Roy Boswell's mission as an American Impressionist, showing the Midwest farm through the eyes of one of its sons. I've had people that get paintings and they'll have family over and they'll tell them, you know, doesn't this remind you of, you know, when dad or grandpa used to drive the tractor? You know, it's it's nice that it kind of brings back this thing to them. Time that, you know, is no longer there because it's something I think people are always kind of get a hold of and uh, occasionally you get it. And when you get it, you... You know, it's it's a nice thing to hold on to for a little bit. Just amazing. Well, you can check out more of Roy's work and see a full list of his upcoming showings at RoyBoswell.com. Remember, you can catch Inside Indiana Business Television on stations throughout the state every weekend. Head to InsideIndianaBusiness.com to check listings. The world's first reusable breast milk storage container was made in Indiana, and a Purdue grad was behind it. Janobi founder and chief executive officer Nikki Ramsey spoke with Kylie Valletta in the business of health. All right, so this all started a few years ago. You're a busy working mom, breastfeeding and pumping on the go, using those standard kind of market standard Ziploc little plastic bags. You were totally over it. And so I'll let you take it from there. Yes, I, like I said, was a breastfeeding mama and my baby had a tongue tie lip tie at the time. So he was nursing a lot and I was going through thousands of those single use plastic milk bags. I wanted an option that was going to be reusable and then also something that was not going to be plastic because we all know about the chemicals that can leach into our water and our food when we use plastic. So I saw after um, something in the market where we all go as parents Mm -hmm. and it didn't exist so I created it. So tell us about some of the benefits. We mentioned it's plastic free. What are some of the other health benefits or features of the Janobi silicone bags? It was very important to me that the product was going to be able to tolerate high heat. So it's they're made with uh, with silicone and silicone is high heat tolerant, it's hyperallergenic, it's naturally bacteria resistant, and you can reheat it many times and don't have to worry about plastic leaching. I love that the product also Um, transitions with the baby as the baby grows. Unlike other products, when the baby gets to be a year old, you really don't have a use for them. But I wanted to make a milk bag that would kind of grow with your baby to a food storage bag and then also to a snack pouch in their primary school years. Right, even mom and dad can use it and put their snacks in it. Oh yes. So let's talk about this appearance on Shark Tank and the deal you got and then what that's meant for your company. It, Shark Tank is, was a once in a lifetime opportunity for us as a small business, any small business, and it was a dream come true. We were able to get a deal 
deal with Emma Greed and it has been life-changing for us. Um, as far as the amount of people that were able to see our company on national television and the amount of families that we're gonna be able to help now as Janobi is continuing to grow so quickly from being on the show, um, it's been life-changing. Good for you. And she said, uh, or your shirt gave $100,000 for 22.5% equity, Yes, 22.5% right? equity okay. is what we negotiated on. Okay. And you yes. were a great negotiator. I watched Thank this segment. You. you were tough. You Thank did good. You. All right. Well, I think part of the reason that Shark Tank was so interested in you is you have such a powerful story about overcoming the odds. You yes. were a homeless teenager. T tell us just a little bit of your story. Um, I was a homeless teenager, barely graduated high school, and honestly, I just trusted in God and put my faith in Him. I was not only able to graduate high school, but I went to college and then graduate school. So it is my faith and my trust in God that got me through those very challenging times as a teenager and through my homelessness. Most certainly he had some big plans for you. And you mentioned you were a Purdue grad and the Purdue Foundry helped you get off the ground. This was even yes. before Shark Take. Tell us just a little bit about the work you did with Purdue Foundry. Purdue Foundry, I always tell people that it kind of reminds me of a little mini business 101 course. So I have a master's degree in communication sciences and disorders, so no business background. I needed something that was gonna be able to allow me to learn about business. Right. And Purdue Foundry was it and we're very thankful for the Foundry program and them just fostering Janobi um, early on in our years. All right, and I know you also have a cooling cup that is on your website people can check out and a couple other products that go along with the bag. So congratulations on the Shark Tank success and keep us posted. Thank you so much. All right, thank you for being here. Well, speaking of feeding babies, when it comes to formula, parents across the U.S. are having a hard time finding it in stores because supply chain issues and a massive recall. The recall at Abbott forced the largest U.S. formula manufacturing plant to close in February due to contamination concerns. The Food and Drug Administration is working with U.S. manufacturers to increase their output and streamlining paperwork to allow more imports. For now, pediatricians and health workers are urging parents who can't find formula to contact food banks or doctor's offices. A Greencastle High School student wants to boost financial literacy among all students. Isaac Hertenstein, the founder of Students Teaching Finance, joined us in our Ion Education segment. You're a young guy, 16 years old, and you have already created this, this nonprofit, Students Teaching Finance. And this, as many people know, I think, such a huge issue that's not being taught, I think, largely right. in, in schools. You're filling a niche. How, how did you come up with the idea to do this? So I saw the lack of financial education in my school and across the state being not one of the 13 nationwide that require a personal finance class. And so this lack of education combined with seeing the haves and have nots in my small community really inspired me. Yeah, so you created a nonprofit. You've created a curriculum that right now is principally what, K through eight? Yes. Uh, talk about the curriculum. You're, you're, I think this is a video of you in a school. Talk about what you're teaching these kids. So what I'm trying to do is teach young students foundational financial topics that essentially can plant seeds in them and begin the learning process when it comes to finance. So that comes across from anything like careers to investing to as basic as needs versus wants. Yeah, so some basic financial literacy, but you also get into what, entrepreneurship and uh, uh, some of those areas too uh, in, the, in the business world. 
Absolutely. So at the middle school level, what we, we have one of our main lessons is about careers and future business opportunities and specifically how education can relate to that. Mm-hmm. And so what we, we try to introduce people or introduce the students to business careers, including entrepreneurship, which is very important. Okay. Now you're getting some national attention. You were in a pitch selected to be in a pitch competition um, by Prudential. Talk about that experience and coming away uh, as a winner. Absolutely. So the Prudential Emerging Visionaries program is a scholarship program, essentially, that provides funding for my project students teaching finance. So as one of 25 students, I was selected to go to their headquarters in Newark, New Jersey, and I pitched there and I was one of the grand prize winners. And it was a great opportunity to meet amazing other students who are doing similar things, albeit in finance or societal solutions, and also meet many of Prudential's executives. Now, a lot of young people your age have trouble communicating. You don't have trouble communicating, I can tell that. But what, what, it, it, do you think there's a benefit to this curriculum at, at, with uh, teaching it to students of similar age or you close to your age, kind of from a peer-to-peer level, do you think that helps? Absolutely. So I'm as a high schooler, of course, I go into many younger many younger students' classes, as do other people at Students Teaching Finance. And so we almost break up the monotony of the classroom, and the kids are really interested seeing their older peers come in and teach the lessons. Yeah, okay. Uh, You're going to be a junior, I think, right, in high school next year. What are your plans for this? It would seem that this is a, as we were talking off camera, maybe a scalable business to you. It's a nonprofit. You have a money-making idea, maybe, as part of this? Uh, It's not necessarily a money-making idea. What we're trying to do is almost just change society (laughs) at a small level and then scale it, hopefully, into other states, which you've already begun doing Uh through other high schoolers teaching this curriculum to their younger peers. Oh, well, it's a great story. Isaac uh, Hertenstein, students teaching finance. Uh, Very interesting story. It's all taking place. Putnam County and Greencastle. And uh, Isaac, I'll I'll look forward to watching your progress. I think you're... uh, You're uh, destined for some big things, so thanks for joining us. Yeah, thank you. I appreciate this. All right. Indiana is trying to find its place in the electric vehicle market, and a popular event center on the north side of Indianapolis faces an uncertain future. We talked about that and more with IBJ editor Leslie Weidenbenner. Yeah, let's talk about electric vehicles. That uh, certainly is a hot topic for economic developers. Uh, Indiana, many other states trying to get more and more investment when it comes to EVs. I know there's a commission in Indiana that was announced to, to look at, at uh, doing just that, and it sounds like they're, they're off and running. Now, this group, uh, 10 members uh, from across the industry, and they are looking at ways that Indiana can capitalize on its existing vehicle uh, manufacturing to make sure that as the industry moves to electric vehicles, okay. that Indiana's part of that. Yeah, a lot of lot of potential investment out there. Some of it not going to Indiana here in the early uh, the early going. Uh, a development north of uh, Broad Ripple, the Willows uh, area, two hundred and fifty apartments and townhomes. So a su- fairly substantial developments, kind of raising a few a few eyebrows in that uh, uh, that neighborhood. This is controversial. We've had more letters to the editor about this issue than in any I can remember since I've been at IBJ. This is a development that would replace the Willows Event Center on Westfield Boulevard, right just past a curve as you cross the river. uh, And the folks who live around there, especially in the Oxbow Estates area and Spirit Lake condominiums, they're fighting that. We did recently learn that the city is actually recommending approval to the MDC, the Metropolitan Development Commission. So we'll be watching for the outcome of that, but we've got a lot of details and a map 
in IBJ this week. Very good. And uh, one other story you are working on, uh, not a story really, but honoring healthcare heroes, another big event uh, that the IBJ is putting on, again, focused on these, uh, these heroes in the healthcare sector. Yeah, we honored these folks on Friday morning, and it's a great program, and we've got a lot of really interesting physicians, nurses, volunteers, researchers. So if you take a look at IBJ, you'll be able to read all about them. All right, Leslie Wyden-Benner, as always, uh, great stuff coming up this weekend in the IBJ. Appreciate you joining us. Uh, have a great weekend. Thanks so much, Gary. And finally this week, our insiders weigh in on Indiana's top business stories. This week's panel includes Indiana GOP Director of Diversity and Engagement, Whitley Yates, Ball State Center for Business and Economic Research Director, Mike Hicks, and Vox Global Managing Director, Mike Marker. We're going to start with the economy. We'll defer to the economists uh, among us. Uh, first of all, um, the RV industry, you would think with fuel prices, uh, inflation, all the challenges, supply chain, that they would really be hit hard. But numbers just came out last week showing uh, double digit increases in production, I think, sales. Yeah, I mean, shocking. They were up in 2021 by 200,000 or 40 percent over where they were in 2019. Just a fantastic year. You would kind of think with inflation, you know, gas prices, fear of interest rates increases, they'd be shrinking. But now they're moving along, have seemed to have fixed the supply chain problems, mm -hmm. labor shortage for them is a big deal, but I think they're going to have a great year. The RV industry is as an indicator uh, of what's ahead. What, how, how does that? I mean, I thought the RV industry uh -huh. is a pretty good indicator of both good and bad times. And, and right now they're saying the economy is going to be sustained growth for the you know, mm -hmm. next 18 months or so. Yeah. So that portion of the economy is performing really well, despite the, the fears of inflation. And mm -hmm. of course, interest rates are likely to put a damper on housing markets this year, and we don't know about war in Ukraine, what other right. sort of shenanigans that may inflict on the global economy. But right now, if you look at the basics, we're, we're, we're moving along fairly well. Yeah. Whitley, as you look at, at the economy, certainly it's always mm -hmm. a big issue um, uh, heading into this uh, election cycle mm -hmm. coming up. Mm -hmm. How big an issue will the economy be, in particular here in Indiana? Yeah. Let's be honest. It's going to be a number one issue. I think that it's interesting the RV industry is doing so well while other industries are not, but maybe the great resignation has led people into getting mm -hmm. on their RVs and having more leisure time. When it comes to this next election, I think the economy will be top on the list, specifically here in Indiana. How inflation and interest rates are impacting Hoosiers on a daily basis uh, is going to be top of the ticket, I'm sure. Yeah. Yeah, and I think with the economy, I'm, I'm thrilled the RV industry is doing well. I do agree, Whitley, that people are, they have a lot of money, a lot, still a lot mm -hmm. of consumer spending power out there, and they're deciding to spend more on experiences, mm -hmm. right? And so even though inflation's there, even though gas is going up, people are saying, I want to go out and enjoy myself, and I'm going to do that through an RV, and that's good uh, for here in the state economy. Yeah, your workforce continues to be a big issue, and uh, finding uh, workers, we were talking before we started taping here, the unemployment rate in Elkhart County has doubled, and it's it's still under 2 so uh, very low uh, employment or unemployment. Um, and as you look at Indiana attempting to attract these big economic development projects to get people to move here, Dave Ricks, had, the CEO at Lilly, had some interesting comments uh, now a couple of weeks ago talking about Indiana doing well in these traditional metrics of business climate and taxation and those types of things. But some of these other uh, issues, workforce skilling up uh, the workforce, uh, health care costs, hidden costs of doing business don't do very well at all. And it was kind of a, and I'll start with you, Willie, kind of a, to me, it was like a, a warning sign from the business community that, that Indiana needs to get its arms around these issues. 
Well, what I found interesting um, is that some of the areas in which that he spoke about were already working on. When you look at the budget, when you look at the investments that the state is currently making, whether that be in education, whether that be in upskilling workers, we're already putting the investments and creating that culture to bridge the gap on some mm -hmm. of these things. And I think it was, you know, just the canary in a coal mine type of a situation because we've already put in place steps to go ahead and mitigate some of the things that he was speaking about. Yeah. So. Mike, when a CEO, a high profile CEO like that says that, does that yeah, bring a little more weight to the, 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 the debate or the discussion? Absolutely. I mean, if you read James Briggs' column last week, you point out that the economists around the country pointed out the, the, the challenges Indiana has in attracting and retraining well-educated mm -hmm. workers. We're 44th in degree completion and retention in the country. That's a long-term problem for a company like Lilly. If you're, if you're processing tomatoes, it's not a big issue. Mm -hmm. If you want to be a high-tech, high-pay industry, Indiana has really got a big hill to climb on that area. And his comments, I think, think, awakened Hoosiers to that problem. Yeah, to, I have a slightly different yeah, perspective on yeah. that. Uh, I, I do agree that uh, some of the points he made are valid points. We do need to be better. We do need to be more competitive. Uh, but when we look at education and worker career paths, um, I, I just noted that he made these comments at the Economic Club at a time when Lily stock was trading at $300 a share, up from $40 a share over the last decade. So they've made a lot of money. They've taken advantage of tax breaks as well. Mm -hmm. And I would put it back on Lilly and other employers or how are you going to engage in the process? And I think there's a tremendous example in our state with Cook Medical Group who is doing that and investing significantly. So it's not gonna happen just with policymakers and it's not mm -hmm. just gonna happen in, in metro areas around the state to get it done. We're gonna need employers and Lilly's gonna need to play an important role in yeah, that. Yeah, to, to kind of dovetail off Whitney, Whitley's comments, uh, Mike, things are being done. I think things are, there are things being done. Is it a case of it's going to take time for this to happen or, or does there need to be more of a sense of urgency around these, these oh, I think it, the bottom line is we're spending about 15% less now per student in K through 12 than we were 12 years ago mm. in, in inflation adjusted terms. And so, um, you know, Lilly moved a factory to North Carolina, right. which boosted their stock prospects. Yeah, it's an urgent problem right now. It's something the legislature has to take up. It's going to take a decade or two to turn around. And the longer we wait, the worse it's, the outcome is going to be and the longer yeah. the, re the remedy. And one yeah. other note on that, they moved that plant to North Carolina, who has in the 20% in terms of mm. folks with two and four year degrees. Absolutely. So we are outperforming North Carolina where the jobs went. That's not true. It is. Uh oh, okay. Mm -hmm. we're, we're, we're. No, it's not. In the area that they moved to has higher educational attainment than any area in about Indiana. The state. All right, fine. There, if you're Western Hills in North Carolina don't matter, just like East Central Indiana is not going to be a place to attract these types of firms. Cities, counties that outperform others with terms of educational attainment are growing. That's why Indy is growing, is picking up about 130% of the job growth of Indiana over the last 20 years. Global spotlight on Indiana. We see more and more uh, international trade trips. The governor, secretary of commerce have taken two, I think, in the last two months. Later this month, uh, May 26th to the 29th, the first global economic summit to be held here in Indianapolis. They've capped a registration at 800. They didn't know how this would go. Uh, they've got 24 ambassadors, I think, from around the globe, former CEO of Google and others. Uh, Whitley, in your view, the whole idea, I guess, is to mm -hmm. bring the world to Indiana. Yes. Um, 
What, what does this represent in terms of what Indiana can, can gain from this summit? This is something that I think we should all be excited about. I think that putting us on the map as a prospect and leader in global economics, especially after the comments of the CEO, is important. I think Governor Holcomb has made it a priority to say that he's going to bring Indiana to the world and bring the world to Indiana. And I think that this is the next step in doing that. And so having the convening of such high, powerful, impactful you know, spheres of influence within the economic realm and within all of these, these top businesses is important mm -hmm. for Indiana. Yeah, and uh, you know, the governor and the IEDC have now ticked off five consecutive years of record-breaking direct foreign investment. Uh, so a great story there. And I think a lot of the reasons you're seeing these delegations come over here, 30 plus countries, are because they want to be a part of that. So I think it's going to be probably the single biggest week on the international stage for us with this kind of summit bookended with the Indianapolis 500 and the international reach yeah. of that. It's a really exciting time. I yeah. agree with Whitley. Mike, your take on Indiana's position on the global stage. They've had some economic successes, to, to be sure, some economic development successes globally uh, coming over here to have this event that typically you see these kinds of thing on, things on the coasts, you know, not in the middle of the Right. Country. Well, I mean, let's just be, let's be honest. Indianapolis shows really well. Mm -hmm. So it's a smart move to bring people here to, to show them in a beautiful spring weekend what Indiana has to offer. So that portion of the event here is going to be, I think, very important for the state. Um, I Kudos to the governor for getting this done. I hope it really helps jumpstart the investment in this area. We've done well in some of these where GDP growth still lags nationally, but yeah. uh, you know, those are important things. And again, I think uh, Indiana shows really well and it's important for this sort of work to be done. Low cost, high, high impact activity. Uh, and I'm noting that Mike Hicks guaranteed that the, the race weekend will be a beautiful weekend. So we're gonna check on that. Hey, very quickly, and Mike, I'll throw it to you. Thad Motter returns to Butler. A lot of people kind of surprised at that. Can he bring the Bulldogs back to the- I think so. Bulldogs? And I think it's starts with just the adherence to the Butler way, right? Yeah. I mean, this guy has a tremendous track record, lots of Final Fours in his background, too. Very good. It'll be fun to watch uh, that play out. Uh, Mike Hicks, Mike Marker, Whitley Yates, thank you all for joining us. That wraps up this week's Inside Indiana Business television podcast. Remember, you can find all of this week's TV segments, as well as the top business news from throughout the state at InsideIndianaBusiness.com. While you're there, you can also subscribe to our platform of free e-newsletters. This is Andy Ober for Inside Indiana Business.